Welcome to Champion Church of the Nazarene's weekly sermon podcast. As we continue our journey of grace in our series, Way, Truth, Life, we follow the story of Peter, who had a significant change from what he knew to be. We explore God's sanctifying grace, which changes us completely. We as humans typically do what we know. Duh, Pastor Matt. (laughs) That seems like a very, very obvious statement, does it not? (laughs) We do what we know. But when you begin to really think about it, there is a lot of wisdom in understanding that. We do what we typically know. We respond in ways that we know, in, in ways that we may have naturally developed, or maybe how we have seen others respond. How we live is how we've known to live, right? Let's flesh this out just for a second. For example, when we get stressed, we respond to stress in specific ways. And for me personally, I will not, da- I will not, I'll, I'll not shy away from it. I turn to sweets. It's not, it's funny, but it's not funny. <laughs> when feelings are very difficult, you develop this habit of going and eating your stress, right? Some of us turn to other things. Many of us, maybe in our past, maybe even today, or, or maybe we know somebody has turned to the bottle to deal with stress in their lives. Or, or maybe... Some people just simply bottle up their stress, and you know that they are a literal ticking time bomb at some point to whenever they are going to blow up and take all the stresses that they have out on whoever might be in the room at that moment. Some of us turn to what we call retail therapy. Guys do it too. Don't tell me they don't. I'm reminded of a, this week when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a Brad Paisley song that came out a number of years ago that talked about his love of fishing so much, and his girlfriend says, you can't do this anymore. And he goes, well, I'm going to miss her. (laughs) Because it's what he knows, it's what he loves, and he loves it far more than (laughs) hearing that from the girl that he is with. We do what we know. We respond to life in the ways that we know or the ways that we have learned. And I think it's really important for us to understand that those in Scripture are just like us. In fact, today we're going to be looking at the story of one of the disciples. His name's Peter. And Peter does what he knows after he learns that Jesus is alive. This earth-shattering, reality-shaking, quite frankly, anxiety-inducing thing that happens in the death of the Messiah and the resurrection of this Messiah causes Peter to do what you and I do. He goes back to what he knows. Before we turn in our scriptures to find out where he goes to, let me tell you a little bit about Peter. 
Peter was originally a fisherman. And he was called by Jesus at the start of his ministry. Now Peter showed himself to be a very non-perfect disciple. He got some things right and he got some things way wrong. Peter also, though, was this person who wore his feelings on his sleeve. You knew what he was thinking. He often actually spoke before thinking (laughs) in a lot of ways. He was a hothead. He got angry very often. But he also, well, before I get to that last part, he also was not necessarily the brightest person. Just so you know, if a person, uh, sorry, not a person, a man, because women couldn't be disciples of rabbis back in this day, but if a man took up his father's trade like fishermen, like uh, a brick maker, like a, a merchant, all of these different kinds of things, it means that as a Jew, they were rejected by all rabbis, saying, you don't know your scriptures well enough, you're probably not smart enough to follow me, so go back to your home and learn the trade that your father did. So that tells us that Peter wasn't the brightest person either. He does not have the academic acclaim. But last but not least, Peter was a product of first century Judaism. And he learned and had views of people that weren't always fair. He was prejudiced. Dare I say racist. Dare I say xenophobic in some ways. Don't kid yourself. Peter hated Rome and anybody who worked for Rome. Because they are from there. They are the ones who oppress my people, therefore I hate them. And again... We do what we know and we understand that, but that's who he was. But he finds out that his Lord, the one who he'd been following for three years, after dying on the cross and after him getting afraid and saying, I don't know that guy on the cross, that guy all of a sudden comes back from death and raises from the grave. And this is earth-shattering. This is reality-shifting. Everything he knew was not what he knew anymore. And so he does, in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, he returns to something that he knows, even though Jesus, the one he followed, Jesus, the one he wanted to appease, Jesus, the one who he had made himself a follower of, told him that he was going to be something else. This is what he turns to. John chapter 21, I think I'm starting with, yeah, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They set out in a boat and throughout the night they caught nothing. Peter, along with the other disciples who were formerly fishermen, go back to fishing after this very amazing moment. Now you need to understand something. Jesus told Peter explicitly that he was going to be a fisher of men, not a fisher of fish. So he is not doing what he is 
told that he was going to do. If you continue to read in John chapter 21, you will find out that as they are fishing and they catch nothing, they begin to see a man walking on the side of the sea. And he tells them, hey, throw, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And sure enough, huge catch. And Peter is reminded immediately of the moment that he first met Jesus. Because you need to understand that as Peter met Jesus in one day, he told him to do the same exact thing. And guess what? A catch came. So as soon as this happens, Peter's like, that's Jesus. And he jumps off the boat. <laughs> he does not help his friends. <laughs> because again, he's a hothead and he does things without thinking. <laughs> this is who Peter is. They go and they have breakfast together. But Jesus enters into a conversation with Peter. Again, this is all right here in John 21. I'm paraphrasing it and telling the story. And he simply asks Peter a very, very revealing question. Peter, do you love me more than thee? And Peter, who has followed him for three years, is like, duh, Jesus, of course I love you. I followed you for three years. This is not a question, really. Jesus responds, then please take care of my sheep or feed my sheep. I'm sure Peter was a little confused. But then Jesus asks the same question, do you love me? And he does this two more times for a total of three. And by the end, Peter's offended at this. But here's the reality of things, friends. It was three times that Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus. See, what we have in this moment is that Peter, even though he is forgiven by Jesus in this moment, he is helping Peter understand the pain it means to be denied three times. And just like what we talked about last week, do you remember we talked about this? That Jesus saves you and forgives you of your sin, but he also restores you. Do you know how you go through restoration? It's a painful process of admitting, of being humble and recognizing, yeah, I messed up. That is what this moment is. This is restoration work. But the last thing that Jesus says to him is, feed my sheep. Jesus is doing something that he used to do with Peter before he died and rose again from the grave. He is telling him exactly who he's going to be. You're going to be a fisher of men. You are going to feed and take care of my sheep. He's not necessarily getting it. Peter can't necessarily get this. Because guess what? He is still doing what he knows. He is still doing all the things of his life like he has always done it. With, with, no, <laughs> with no thought, he, he jumps into the water. With no thought, he's like, of course I love you, Jesus. Forgetting that he did exactly what he had always done was afraid of Roman rule in the moment when Jesus was being sentenced by Rome. 
Peter can't even imagine the possibility and the calling that Jesus is setting forth into his life. We're continuing our series today, Way, Truth, Life, Discipleship as a Journey of Grace. And last week, we talked about the saving grace that Jesus gives. This is what we always talk about in the church. Everything that you have ever done is forgiven. If you turn to Jesus and accept him, everything is forgiven. But then he also restores you. But let's really be honest. If you have ever turned to Jesus in your life, you recognize that you still do a lot of the things that you know. You still do some of the very same sins that you've always done, even after giving your life to Jesus. And this is, quite frankly, where we get some of our denominations. <laughs> some say, you get Jesus, you're restored, you can't outrun sin, you're going to keep on sinning and all these different kinds of things. You can't escape it. We don't believe that. We don't believe that because Scripture shows us stories of human beings moving further and deeper in following Jesus. They accept a, a, the, the same grace from God, but another part of His grace. And I'm here to tell you that if you've ever been told that there is no way that you can not be controlled by sin, I'm telling you, it's possible. If you have been told that there is no way I can do the things that Jesus asks His followers to do, like forgive enemies and turn the other cheek and all these other things. No, it's possible. If you have ever felt completely and utterly incapable of living like the original early church lived, I'm telling you, it's possible. Because it happens to Peter. And so we are going to move forward in Peter's story to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. And what we are going to begin to understand is that Peter, if Peter can change, we can change. But it's not because of what we can do ourselves, but whether, rather what God can do in us. Acts chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, your app, or you just want to look at the screens, you're more than welcome to. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. You need to understand that they are gathered together because Jesus said, hey, go meet me over here. Okay, cool, I'll do that. As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Friends, before I go any further, that is a political question. <laughs> He's basically asking, hey, Jesus, are you finally going to do the messianic thing that I want you to do and take down Rome and Israel becomes great again? I love what Jesus does. Jesus replied, it isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. He doesn't even answer the question <laughs> at all. Wrong question, guys. 
Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. And after Jesus said these things, they, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going away, and as they were staring toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. They said, Galileans. Why are you standing here looking toward heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered the city, they went, into, went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, Alphaeus' son, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, James's son, all were united in their devotion to prayer, along with some women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You see in this moment, at this moment of the ascension, they, Peter and his friends still don't get what Jesus was here to do. Still don't get it. And Jesus is very gracious. Jesus is very patient. And Jesus says, The Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit's coming. And even as he lifts, floats, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to imagine it, but as he goes into the heavens, heavens, of course, symbolize to Jews where God lived so that we understand that he is moving up to reign on high. The resurrected one is reigning on high. They keep staring. They keep staring. There's a sermon in that, by the way. Sometimes we stare up into heavens but that's for another day. They're staring. All of a sudden, some angels are right next to them saying, hey, what are you doing? Didn't you hear him? You're going to go into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Go make disciples of all nations. What are you doing staring up there? Yes, he's going to come back down the same way that he, he went up, but hey, go do the thing that you needed to do. And I'm sure the disciples, along with Peter, were probably a little confused still. But here is the moment that they do something different than what they did previously. Instead of doing what they know and going fishing, they all gather together in an upper room. And they begin to pray. Something's different this time. Why would they pray? Well, you, you need to understand that for three years they followed a man who would heal somebody, and then he would slip away and go pray. And he would actually teach them how explicitly to pray. When we prayed it earlier, the Lord's Prayer. Something is important about prayer. And so what they do is instead of returning to what they know, they return to what they were taught. And this is big. Because when you begin to pray, you begin to open yourself up to God. You begin to say, okay, 
Maybe my life is not my own. Maybe I can't do this life by myself. Maybe I don't have it all. I need to open myself up to the God who loves me. And that's what they're doing. They gather together in corporate prayer and they begin to co-op, like they're, they're showing this attitude of cooperation to see what God is going to do next. They are waiting for God to do something next. And it is in this posture that days later, this posture of prayer, this posture of openness, this posture of surrender, that something amazing happens. And in Acts chapter 2, we read about Pentecost Day, what we call the birthday of the church, when the Holy Spirit, that promised entity that, that Jesus had, had promised throughout his entire ministry, appears. And it's crazy because you need to understand that a wind is rushing through the place of the disciples and all those gathered there, and the tongues of fire appear over their heads, and they begin to speak in all the different languages of the world. And everybody seems to understand each other, even though it seems a little nutty that people are saying different languages of the world. And all the bystanders see Pentecost happen, and they're wondering to themselves, these people are drunk. What is happening? They're like way too happy. Way too happy saying languages that I've never heard before, saying things I don't understand, saying things that Jesus is the Messiah, blah, blah. These people are drunk. And Peter, who is a part of that group that received the Spirit, looks to stand up and talk. And I can't imagine, I, I have to think, there, there was 12 disciples that somebody doubted. Oh no, no, Peter, don't get up and talk. Don't do this, Peter. You're going to say something stupid. How many times did you say something stupid in front of Jesus? Don't do this. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, he says this, Peter stood with the other 11 apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this, listen carefully to my words. Some disciple in the path and, and behind. Listen carefully. Are you going to speak carefully, Peter? These people aren't drunk, as you suspect. After all, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Peter? What are you about to do? And he declares with the Spirit within him, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young will see visions, and your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Peter interprets Hebrew Scripture, our Old Testament, in light of what is happening in front of him. In real time, 
He doesn't go over here and think about it for a long time. He does it in real time. And why does he do it in real time? Because the days leading up to this day, he had opened himself up to what the Spirit might want to do in him and around him in prayer. He was ready for the Spirit to push him to say a declarative word. And he says it in a way that is measured, in a way that is challenging yet kind, in a way that Jesus himself would have said it. What has happened? How does Peter go from the bullheaded, angry, think, talking without speaking, racist, xenophobic guy to accepting all of these people in Pentecost, to sharing this amazing word, to having insight to Scripture that nobody has ever said before. It is the Spirit. The Spirit has come within Him and has worked within Him, and He is able. He is able to interpret a prophet's words in a way that no one had done before. The Spirit has caused him to speak measuredly in a way that God wanted him to speak. The Spirit has caused him to break free from the power of sin in his life. The Spirit has worked that he would not embrace the ways and thoughts and actions that he knew, but rather to embrace God's holiness within him. Friends, Peter was sanctified. And if you're not used to the word sanctification, it really means this. It is God making you holy like Him. And you can, you, you can look at this in two ways. You can say, He is making me holy like Him. W-H-O-L-L-Y means completely like Him. Or holy, the biblical word H-O-L-Y, set apart, different than the rest of the world. Sanctification is God making us like Him that is different than the rest of the world. And sanctification, friends, changes us from what we know. What we know is sin. What we know is brokenness. What we know is injustice. What we know is pain and suffering. Sanctification transforms that into right living, into holiness, into triumph, into life. Sanctification frees us from the power of original sin and it equips us to live holy lives for the purpose of His kingdom. And the only way it works, the only way that the Spirit does this in us, is by surrender. The church word is consecration. <laughs> if you're like, I learned these things in Sunday school. It's surrender. It's the easiest way to understand it. It's you're giving everything to Jesus. It's not just accepting forgiveness. It's giving all of this. Head, heart, body, actions, thoughts, 
words. You have to give it to Him completely. And only in the, with the Spirit within you can we live lives free from the power of sin. Does it mean that you can never sin ever again once you're sanctified? No! You have free will. You can sure as... You can definitely go to God, hey, Spirit, I'm so glad that you're in me and I know that this is a sin, but I'm going to do it anyways. Go right ahead and do that. You're going to be feeling bad about it later. But I think so often in the church of the Nazarene, we have talked about sanctification in terms of sin, but we need to recognize that sanctification gives you and I the ability to live like Jesus lived. To actively serve other people who you either disagree with or that you actually hate. The Spirit gives you and I the ability to forgive those people who have wronged us in unforgivable ways. The Spirit is the one who causes us to love people who are different than us, who may not agree with us at all, who may want to hurt us. The Spirit is the one who gives you and I the ability to make disciples of all nations in this world. You cannot do it. We have to be cooperative. We have to give ourselves to the Spirit, and the Spirit does these things through us. So don't believe the, those folks who say, hey, you're forgiven. Now keep on living your life. That's not good news. That's terrible news. Because the way that I live my life brings so much pain into my own life and destruction to other people's lives. Because when I do selfish things, I create brokenness. Now the gospel's bigger than that. The gospel is better than that. So just so you know, to live a Christian life, to be a disciple, sanctification isn't a luxury option like a car. Oh, yeah, I'll get the leather seats. I'll add some sanctification to my salvation. No. It is standard equipment. If you're going to get in the car with Jesus Christ, understand that you are going to have to give yourself to Him and let Him drive. Your hands have been off the wheel a long time. Sorry, Carrie Underwood. If you've ever come to church and you've been challenged by the things that Jesus has said, and you say, I can't do that, you can. You can. The Spirit sanctifies those who give themselves to Him. And He, it, will work in ways for the rest of your life. i got to tell you something, friends. I am still coming under, I'm still being awakened to things that I have thought and to, to systems and structures that I have participated in that I have found out actually are sinful. It's, there's a moment of sanctification, but he continues to work within you and you begin to be that restorative force for the kingdom of heaven. 
But the only way to do it is to be cooperative. As David Busick says, we cannot sanctify ourselves or make ourselves like Jesus. The Holy One makes us holy. God is our sanctifier. But as in our salvation, cooperation is necessary. Friends, consecration is an every moment thing. Some of us try to separate our life with God with everything else. And it's evidence, even within the church today, with who people are listening to and how people are spending their time and how we treat others. God, if, if, if you are listening to voices that are anti-Christ, that looks to, <laughs> to hate a group of people, if you're listening to voices in your life that look to bring temptation actively into your life, God puts it on you. Man, I, 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 can't, I, mm, I, I can't get drunk anymore. But then you're like, you know what? I'm going to go hang out with Josh. We don't have any Joshes here. No offense to any Josh listening. I'm not saying that all Joshes are drunks. Uh, but I'm going to go hang out with Josh who's going to actively try to get me drunk. You're not listening to the Spirit. You're not surrendering that part of your life to Him. That's not happening. But in the same way, we can also isolate ourselves. When Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, I'm going to sit in my pew on Sunday morning with people who are like me, who look like me, who make the same amount of money as me, who believe the same things as me, and that will be good enough. No. The Spirit moves you to others who are different from us, who look different than you, who make different money than you, who believe different things than you, who sleep with people who you don't agree with, who vote for the other guy. <laughs> if you want to isolate yourself, I want to tell you something. Sanctification ain't in your life. That ain't what we're called to do either. We are called to live holy lives in the world that God is reigning in. And we have to surrender every bit to him. Even your family, even that kid who has run away and you just want to disown them, you got to love them. When they want to come home, you have your door open. When Karen at work opens her mouth, you graciously love her, even though she is saying some of the worst things you've ever heard in your entire life. No offense to actual Karen who li who, who's actually here in our church. <laughs> Dennis Kinlaw says this, holiness means that there is no corner of your life shut off from the control of Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is, y'all. That's entire sanctification. It's what we believe. And I'm telling you right here, right now, if you have never given all to God, let me tell you, you're missing out. You're missing out. You're living a half-life. You're living a, a way that says, hey, Jesus, I'll accept your forgiveness, but your way of life, not so much. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to continue to bring brokenness into the world. No, that's not it. We're called to live in His work and His holiness and His life. 
and it's evident in everything that you are. Your attitude, your words, your actions, your, what time you spend, who you listen to, who you spend time with, everything. I know i got to wrap up. I can talk about sanctification forever. You know why? Because the church of the Nazarene believes in it. It's what I believe in. It's why I'm here. Whew. But let me tell you a story to sort of wrap this all up. And it's my own story. Pastors don't like to talk about themselves too much. You know why? First of all, we are not perfect. And if we talk about ourselves too much, we might give you the impression that we got it all together. As I told you at the very beginning, I ate Nutella and animal crackers last night because of the stress in my life, okay? I'm not perfect. I get mad at people. I have conversations with people that will never happen and they're very angry conversations and I gotta go, God, please forgive me. But God lets me know because he's in me. So what I wanna tell you this is is that we're not looking to be heroes and I don't want this experience to be your experience because the way that we experience the spirit is diverse. But I can tell you that the means and the ends are very similar. Your heart is transformed. You don't want to sin anymore. You want to love. You want to do all that God wants in this world. That is sanctification. And the day that I remember that I claim as my sanctification experience was in a time of my life where I was young and I was bold and I said what I thought and I Shouldn't have. And I was a mean, ugly person who did not love, but rather thought that being a Christian means going out and making you believe what I believe. I'll force you to do it. I'll convince you of it. Somehow I'm going to smack you with the Bible and you're going to learn it or whatever. See ya. Go enjoy hell. That was me. That was me. You can ask some of my high school friends. They're like, you're a jerk, dude. I don't know if they were actually friends or not, actually. Uh, <laughs> I was like Peter, y'all. Hot-headed. Yes, I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania in the hills of Appalachia. Yes, I was racist. Yes, I was xenophobic. Yes. I would not accept people and see them as people, but rather how I saw them. Atheists. Evil people. Exactly how Peter saw the world. And it was after I left that area and I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the buckle of the Bible Belt, and I went to college, and I, as I said, you know how I mentioned that we can't be isolating ourselves too much? I went probably to a Christian university more to isolate myself than anything. The great thing about Christian universities, though, is that you can't be isolated because people still do stuff. <laughs> oh, yes, I agree to do all these things. I knew people who were at the bars on the weekends. I know people who slept with each other. I know the whole gamut happened in Christian universities. I went there for the isolation. But it was in that first year, we had a spiritual deepening week, a 
what we might call revival. And a speaker came and spoke for three days in a row and began to really share with me what sanctification is. All of us. And I came to the realization that spirit living in you manifests itself as perfect love for others. That wasn't me. I was... I had accepted Jesus' forgiveness, but totally ignored the restoration and the love and the peacemaking and all of it. I was a culture warrior. I was off to war for God when God had already won the war. And as I heard these words, I came to the realization. And it only happened because I was in a place of people who were drawing near to God in a place of prayer, in a place that was teaching Scripture, in a place like the upper room. And I opened myself and I went down to that altar and I opened my life to the Spirit to work in my life in a way that I had never done before. And I knew that something happened that time, not even right immediately, There were some things that changed immediately, but there were things that changed as the year went on. But I knew something had happened a year later. Because you understand, we we had suites in Trevecca. You lived with six other guys. It was great, actually, because you had a bathroom for six guys instead of going to a communal thing and things like that. It's not important. Sorry. But one of my suite mates, his name... Is Trent. He's from Georgia. Let me tell you. Oh, the accent. Oh, music to my ears. Trent, at one point, sophomore year, comes up to me and he goes, you're different from last year. I'm like, what do you mean? Is that good or a bad thing? He goes, you're just different than last year. And as I started to take a mental note of what happened in the past year and the people I was spending time with, I came to the realization that I was a lot different. I wasn't looking to isolate myself. I wasn't looking to to be a culture warrior. I was just looking to be with people and to love and to share the gospel with Christ through my life instead of pounding them over with a Bible. And that wasn't the only moment I have continued to grow since. And I told you, I'm still, there's still places that God reveals in my life and say, hey, you haven't, this, you gotta let me change this. If you think, friends, that what you know is all that God wants you to have, I got good news. He's got something better. If you think that you have to be stuck in your addiction, that sin, that grudge that you hold against that person, if you think you have to be angry all the time or sad all the time, if you think that you have to put on these defense mechanisms or turn to to things that are unhealthy for you and for others, you don't have to. God has given His grace freely to you. All you got to do is surrender. 
Thanks for listening to Champion Church of the Nazarene's weekly sermon podcast. We hope you were inspired by this week's message. We'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We are located at 3924 High Street Northwest in Warren, Ohio. You can also join us on Facebook Live. For more information about our ministries, or if you'd like to contribute to our ministries online, visit us at championnaz.org.